Am I a worshiper? Because more than anything else, that is what the world needs today. You know, as I was preparing, I had the benefit of days this time to prepare. And I thought I had my topic uh, all wrapped up. And last night, we had some friends come to our house. Uh, Their names are the Pontiers, dear missionary family. And the interesting thing about the Pontiers is he was a pilot that, uh, when I was a kid, used to fly me back and forth to boarding school. And so he's been in my life a very long time, and I think they've been living and serving in Africa for the last um, probably close to 30 years, 86, more than 30 years. Their entire life has been spent as missionaries in Africa. And so now they're on home assignment, and they're spending the year basically traveling around uh, to their various churches. They live in Florida, but they travel and visit the churches and the supporters that um, are connected with their work. And, uh, you know, in the course of the conversation, they related how hard it was for them to navigate conversations with people that they haven't seen in a long time. And they were talking about how difficult it is because the divided nature of our country in its politics, they don't know when they walk into someone's house what side of the aisle they're going to be on. And, you know, they have Christian friends, some, many of which I assume would be what we would consider to be typical conservatives who fall more on the red side of the aisle. But they also have some friends who claim to be Christians who are more on the blue side of the aisle. And I know I don't see that. I don't see how that can happen either. But <laughs> but as they were talking, I was just thinking about my whole family, how you know I'm half English and half my family live in Britain. And uh, they're British conservatives. But they look at American conservatism and they think that we've lost our minds. They don't understand us. But it got me thinking, as they were talking, it got me thinking about what defines us as Christians. It's not necessarily our denomination, although that can define us. It's not necessarily our our politics. That can define us. It's not necessarily our party, but truly, what defines a Christian to the world as they see us, as they think about us? What, are they, what is the divining characteristic of a Christian to the world? And so that's what I was kind of thinking about last night when I went to bed. And this morning, I got up and my reading was from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and the first chapters of John. And again, as I was pondering that thought, I began to think about worship. And, my, and as I uh, began to think about worship, I thought, what it is, what is it to be a worshiper? And so as I was reading, I began to feel the Lord impressing upon me the answer to my previous night's question, and that question was, what is it that defines us as a Christian? And I believe the answer, when we boil it all down, is... Am I a worshiper? Truly, that's what defines us. Am I a worshiper? And so this evening, instead of going to the book of Acts, we're going to talk about worship. 
And maybe that's a topic that you might think that Tony or John or Micah or James might do a better job at. Certainly I'm not a, I don't have very many cords in my fingers, but, um, but tonight you're going to hear it from a missionary pastor's perspective, my take on Isaiah chapter 6 and John chapter 4. So those are going to be our two texts this morning. Is that screen on back there or is it not? No, I don't think it is. I believe that God is looking for worshipers. I don't believe I know. God is looking for worshipers. And I think that more than anything else, the world needs worshipers. The world and I say that in a general sense, the world has many excuses why they would or could dismiss the church and why they can point to what I would consider fuzzy views or fake views of Christianity. And they kind of broad brush us and say, look at you guys, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. The world needs to see true worshipers. The world needs the church to be the church. People who are worshiping the true God, truly worshiping the true God in the true sense of the word. So that brings me to the question, what is worship? And if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, a wonderful passage that to me always speaks about worship. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. One had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, when we come to the topic of worship, we often kind of compartmentalize that word. And we often think of worship, our first thought is it's a kind of music, or it's a kind of singing. Or maybe if we have a bigger view, it's a portion of the Sunday service a part of the day, a day of the week. And so before we get into it, I'm just going to have a little fun with that idea and show you what worship looks like in other parts of the world. And let's hope this works. Can we have some volume? So that's some place up in the Bateso region of Uganda. They call that, uh, well, they, you saw African harp and a, some piano, they call that. Here's another one. 
When I watch that video, it sometimes brings tears to my eyes because I know all those little kids. But uh, that was the children's choir in Entebbe. Another kind of worship. Here's another one. Give the junk, jumpiness of the. This is just my iPhone as I was doing this, right? So, anyway, that's up in the northwestern uh, part of Uganda, in a place called Paida. And here's one that you might feel more comfortable with. Can I say it? The difference between white and black? (laughs) Here's another one. are the kids from our school over there. So different kinds of worship, certainly different than what we're accustomed to here. I always say that when we get to heaven, I think it's going to be the Africans that are going to be leading us in worship. But, (laughs) But back to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9... We, sorry, Isaiah 6, thank you, good thing that Ted's here, we have not a view of humans worshiping, we have a view of a worship scene in heaven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, when I read this, I can't help but, you know, as I was showing you the videos of those different kinds, different kinds of worship in different tribes, tribal areas of Uganda, those are all parts or uh, illustrations of what worship might be. But here, in Isaiah chapter 6, it's as if we have another video, another view, and the curtain is pulled aside for us in these few verses, and we see the worship that is going on in heaven. We have the benefit of Scripture to know what worship is looking like in heaven. And I would say if there's true worship, I imagine it's what's going on up there right now. 
But when we, in a sense, draw aside that curtain in this scene, what do we see? You know, as I, I, I think of myself in Isaiah's vision and in his shoes, and he, his eyes are open and he sees this spectacle of the Lord on his throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is, is filling the temple. And we see these creatures called seraphim, angels with six wings who themselves are amazing to behold, and they themselves are worshiping, and they're crying out, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we see there in verse 4 that the doorposts were shaking at the sound of the voices of the angels as they worship. And it says there that smoke is rising, and we don't know where that smoke is coming from, but most likely it's just the aura of the glory of God. This is the worship that is, God, that, that is going on in heaven. This is the worship of God that is going on in heaven. And I see in that worship, I see reverence. I see awe. I see sincerity. I see humility. I see purity. I see that there is a fear of God as God is lifted up and glorified. And there is a sense... I imagine Isaiah, as he's there, there's a sense that as he is in the presence of God, that God and his will and his glory is all that matters. I get get the sense that that has captured the entirety of Isaiah's imagination, of his attention. He's not thinking of anything else. All he can think about is God who is in front of him. But then I step back and I think we have the benefit of Scripture to be able to peer and look into what's going on in heaven through the words of Isaiah. But think of the world, you know, and I think of that more and more nowadays. You know, when I grew up, there was the basic assumption that everyone kind of knew about the Bible. Everyone used to go to Sunday school class, and when, whether they believed it or not, we all had a basic common morality, the, the moral knowledge that Rob talks about. But that's, it's not like that today. We have one, at, le- at least one, maybe two generations of people that have grown up without that moral knowledge, without the knowledge of God. And so, what of them? God still loves them, and they... We know that there is a void in everyone's heart that can only be filled by God. And they, the world desperately needs to know God. And they also need to know what God is like and how God desires to be worshipped. That's the world out there. They don't have the view. They don't have the benefit of Scripture to look into that and understand the glory of God. For us as Christians, Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, and he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. We know from Scripture that God has made himself known to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. 
But even us as Christians, right now we have an unclear picture of the things of God. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. You know, we worship, as Paul shares there, we worship a God that we don't see fully clearly. We have a dim picture, a, a faint outline, but we will never fully know God until we are with him. But the world, those who are outside, who don't have the benefit of Scripture or the witness of others, or the Spirit of God inside of them, they look at us. They look at the church, you and I. In a sense, we are the picture they have. We're the picture that they have of how God is to be worshipped. And I guess I was thinking last night, what picture do they see? As they look at us as Christians, what picture do they see? I remember one night in Uganda, I was asked to come to what they call an overnight. And one thing I loved about uh, the African people in general is they, they love to pray. And one of their favorite times to pray is just to pray all night long. Not necessarily my favorite thing to do, but it was one of their favorite things to do. They just start at 7, go to 5 in the morning, and they would literally pray all night long. And I was often asked to come and speak. And I remember several times I was asked to come and speak at like 2.30 in the morning. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do anything at 2.30 in the morning, but preaching a sermon at 2.30 in the morning when the lights are dim and there's bugs all around you, it's not an easy thing. But I remember kind of going to this one church, and it wasn't a Calvary Chapel, it was another church, and I knew it was going to be kind of crazy, but I had been asked by a pastor who was a friend, and so I said, okay, I'll go, and he said, turn up at about midnight, and I'm going to have you share, and he wanted me to share on worship, and so I get there at about 11, and you can't miss this place because though it was dark, you could hear what was going on from about a mile away. It was very loud. And I go into the church, excuse me, and everyone was just, it was, it was a wild scene. And as I watched, I was trying to prepare myself for what I was going to speak on, which was worship. But what I saw was, it just disturbed my heart. Because the dancing and, and the chaos. It just seemed so far from what I would consider to be worship. And I know it wasn't just me. I know it was the Holy Spirit kind of impressing upon me um, what worship is and what worship is not. But the question that we ask ourselves then is how do we worship? I think I skipped by that one. How are we to worship? And I want you to go to John chapter 4. And I know you know where I'm going with this. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And the background to that story is Jesus traveling from Jerusalem 
Instead of going around Samaria, he goes through Samaria. In the middle of the day, he's thirsty. He comes across a well. A woman is at the well drawing water. Jesus asks her, her, her to give him a drink, and they get in a conversation. And as she offers him water, Jesus then offers her water that would cause her to never thirst again. And the woman responds by saying, I want that water. I want that water such that I won't have to thirst and I won't have to come draw water again. And this passage is, is just, I mean, you could take this passage in so many ways. It's a wonderful passage just to study in evangelism and how to bring a conversation about to a, the point that, that we want to make with people. But I won't go there, but Jesus tells her to call her husband. She asks for water. Jesus says, call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have had five, and the one you are currently living with is not your husband. Talk about being caught. And to that, she immediately responds, you must be a prophet. And she tries to change the topic, and she tries to get on some religious uh, conversation. She says, well, you worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers say we should worship here. Let's read from verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of a fountain of water springing up into eternal life and the woman said to him sir give me this water that i may not thirst nor come here to draw and jesus said to her go call your husband and come here and the woman answered and said i have no husband and jesus said to her you have well said i have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So, being caught, this woman who on the superficial level is asking for water, but on a deeper level is needing so much more is now entangled in a, in a conversation with Jesus about that very need. She, she does want something. She wants water. She wants ease from her work. But deeper down, she knows that she has a much greater need, but she's too ashamed to expose that need. And Jesus gently exposes the sin and at that moment, she knows that she is speaking to a religious person. And so she starts talking in a religious way. I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. She didn't want to talk about her real need. She wanted to talk about something safe. Let's talk about religion. Where is it that we should worship? But Jesus didn't go there. 
He not only exposes her sin, but she, he also exposes her real need. And her real need was to become a true worshiper of God. And I see there in that passage that she, a Samaritan woman, she knew the Samaritan way of belief. She knew that she was supposed to worship on a certain mountain. She knew about God. She had this idea that worship had to do with a time, a place, a mountain. She had this idea that the Jews had the, uh, knew that it was supposed to be in Jerusalem, in the temple. But Jesus would give her a new definition of worship and what it was to be a worshiper. So how are we to worship? I love Jesus' answer here. In verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For their For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. I want us to focus on verse 22 for a second, because I think that's important. Jesus said there, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. God is spirit. The woman was worshiping or had a worship or claimed to worship something that she really didn't understand. And to me, as I read that, it speaks to a necessary quality of our worship. You worship what you do not know. It speaks to me that true worship requires knowledge. We need to know who it is that we're worshiping. And I've come to see, I remember just thinking about that scene in that African church at 12 o'clock at night and what was going on. And what was coming to my heart was, this is inappropriate. This is out of order. This is not glorifying to God. And I realized that so many of the people there as zealous and maybe even as well-meaning as they were, they were worshiping what they did not know. And in many ways, it was a misplaced or misdirected worship. And I think that so much of that kind of worship, misplaced worship or misdirected or, or wrong worship, is because we don't know. We don't know God. We don't know His character. We don't know what He desires. The woman in this passage assigned worship of God to a time and a place. But Jesus said, God is spirit. He goes on there. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus said, God is spirit. As a spirit, as we acknowledge God is spirit, we acknowledge that 
God isn't bound to time or a place. We know that one of the attributes of God is that He's omniscient and omnipresent. He's everywhere, all the time. And when you think about that, you realize that if God is everywhere, all the time, that has, that will have an effect on how we worship Him, won't it? Because He knows all, because He sees all. There's no place that we can go. Psalm chapter 139, verse 7, David says it so good. He says, 139 verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, darkness shall not hide from you. David understood that nature of God, that God is spirit, and that there's nowhere that we can go from the presence of God. And if there's nowhere that we can go from the presence of God, then that demands that we worship wherever we go, because God is there. Amen? Worship, as I see it here, requires that we understand who God is. If God is spirit, how do we know? How do we know who he is? We know by his word. We know by, by the testimony of those who have taught us. And I see that so much of the craziness in churches and, out, and outside of churches that, that passes off as worship is because it is offered up outside of a knowledge of God. I remember this was very clear to me. I'm, uh, forgive me for using so many illustrations from Africa, but that's where I've lived for 32 years. But I remember the first Christmas I was there when my wife and I first went out, and they have a tradition there, a wonderful tradition actually, of every New Year's, all the Christians from around the country gather in the, in the National Stadium, Nambule Stadium. And so there must be 50 or 60,000 Christians in one big stadium. And it was wonderful. Everyone was wanting to pray. And during the course of the evening, that's what happened. Various pastors would get up and pray. But again, there came that moment at about uh, 11.45 when this one pastor got up and he said, okay, guys, it's time to bring in the new year. And he said, get out your pieces of paper. Write on those papers what it is that you want for the new year. And he, goes, he went on and on about what it could be. Is it, is it money? Is it a job? Is it this or is it that? And write it on the paper. And then for the next 15 minutes, the whole stadium turned into chaos as he instructed everyone in praying. And it, it truly was, all I could think about was Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, that scene where the prophets of Baal are trying to get Baal's attention to bring fire down upon their sacrifice. And no matter what they did, the fire didn't come down, of course. But they began to jump and shout, and um, Elijah was making fun of them. Yell, yell louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a journey. It's kind of humorous when you read that story. But that's the sense. And I remember thinking, I feel sorry 
for these people. I was kind of angry the way this man was leading it because when you worship in such a way, it gives you a picture into the heart as to the kind of God that they're worshiping, that he's indifferent, that he doesn't care, that he actually can't hear all the time. You know, if you have to do that to get his attention, then what kind of God is he? He must be a God that is here and not there. He must, he must be a God that plays games with us and doesn't always listen to us. Or It speaks to the character of the God that we are worshiping. And so we need to worship with knowledge. He is spirit. And Jesus said to the woman, you worship what you don't know. Do we know God? Do we know the character of God? And I believe that the more that we understand who God is from Scripture, the more well-directed our worship can be and will be. But he goes on, he says, not only is God's Spirit, he says those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit. Now I would say there's, I would take that in two ways for sure. Certainly, our worship of God needs to be empowered by the Spirit of God. I would say, first off, that is true. But I would say, secondly, that recognizing that God is Spirit and that God is everywhere, we need to see that worship is also everywhere. It's not just the time that we have in a certain part of the service before or after announcements and before the sermon, it's not a certain place. Because God is everywhere, our worship is also everywhere. Now, I want you to think of where everywhere takes you. <laughs> and I want to ask, do we take worship into all those arenas of our life? Do we take worship of God into our work? Do we take worship of God in our marriage? Do we take worship of God into our friendships? Do we take worship of God into our bedroom? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. We must worship him wherever we are, because wherever we are, he already is. We must worship him in every aspect of our life, in every domain of our life. This is what the world needs to see. Men and women who are worshiping God in every arena of their life. The second thing that that scripture says there is that we must worship him in truth. And I would say again, there's maybe two ways I could go with this, go with that idea. First of all, when we worship God in truth, we are being honest with God about ourselves. We're as we come to God, we're recognizing that we, we can't hide anything from God. We can't deceive God in our worship. We can't come here on Sunday morning and offer him up beautiful words, meanwhile hiding what we know is in our heart. God doesn't want us to come to him in that way. He, he wants us to come before him sincerely, transparently, humbly, truthfully. 
I believe when we go back into the book of Psalm, chapter 51, David expresses that. What is it that God desires? And it's not sacrifices, it's not burnt offerings, but he says what? He says a broken and contrite heart. God wants us to be honest with him. And so I would say the first way of taking that idea of worshiping God in truth is simply being transparent and honest people before God, not trying to hide behind anything, not trying to hide or deceive God in our worship. But there's also another way that we can take that word truth. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If God says that there is truth in worship, that implies that there must also be untruth. If there is true worship, there must also be false worship. And this means that when I come to him to worship, there must be a right way. And I'm not saying that's one way, but there must in general be a right way that I come before God. And there must also be a wrong way to worship him. God demands that those who worship him worship him in truth. And I would say that this would be according to his standard and not our standard. To illustrate that, I take you to two stories in the Old Testament, Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. We know that story. It's the story of Cain and Abel bringing their offerings to God. And the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about their offerings, but it does say that God respected Abel's offering, but Cain's offering he did not respect. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that it was by faith that Abel brought the offering to the Lord. What was the difference? It was in the heart. It was in the way that Cain brought the offering that was unacceptable to God. His worship was not in the, it was not according to truth. It's not the way that God wanted the worship to be brought. We think of the story of Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10. And we know that Nadab and Abihu were the two sons, the oldest sons of Aaron. And it's an interesting story because it tells us that they had witnessed the fire of God coming down and burning that inaugural offering that they brought on the tabernacle. But then in Leviticus 10, it says that each of them took his censer and put fire in it, and they put incense on it, and they offered it to the Lord. And the next uh, sentence says, And fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Wow. What went wrong with Nadab and Abihu's offering? What went wrong with their worship? Well, we come to know that two things. They offered a profane fire. They offered to God something profane. It was something not sanctified. It wasn't made holy. It was unconsecrated. It was ordinary. But not only was it, was it profane, it was presumptuous on their part. They presumed to do something in worship before God 
had commanded them to do so. They went, they went ahead of God. They were outside of God's instruction for how that worship should be done. And that brings us to the conclusion. What did they do wrong? They dared to worship God in a manner which he had not authorized and for which they had no word. And I guess the, the application to us is let none of us dare to act with the same presumption of Nadab and Abihu. But the point is, when we think about worshiping in truth, I've been a pastor in many different places, and, you know, being in Africa, there are kind of three flavors of church, I would say. There's the Catholic church, there's what they call the Protestant church, which is the Church of England or Episcopal church, and then there's the born-again churches, which is pretty much everyone else, and they're pretty much all Pentecostal. And within that umbrella of Pentecostal churches, which, you know, I would get invited out and I would preach, I just came to see so many varieties of worship. And on the one hand, I just wanted to be all-embracing and say it's all worship of God. But there were many times where in my spirit I saw stuff going on that just did not resonate in my heart. And I was like, God, something is wrong here. And when I come back to Scripture, I realize that that's true. We can't just come to God and offer up anything and expect Him to take it as worship. Amen? He wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. He wants us to worship Him His way, the way He has instructed us to worship. Let's close by going back to Isaiah chapter 6. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, again, we're looking back into the worship scene that's in heaven. What should happen when we worship? Isaiah 6 begins with those words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And as I was reading that, I was, I was, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this scripture, but it took King Uzziah getting out of the way before Isaiah was able to have this vision of God. And when we think of King Uzziah, we, we know that he was a great king. He, he served, he he reigned for 52 years. And for a good number of those years, he was a great king. And as long as he was listening to God, God was blessing him and there was prosperity. But the Bible tells us that there was a time when his heart was lifted up. And he himself as king went into the temple and he put incense on the altar. He usurped the authority of the priests and he took that role upon himself and he, did the, he took the priestly role. And the priests came to him and they confronted him and he got angry. And he said, how dare you tell me what I should do? And at that moment, the Bible tells us that God struck him with leprosy and he spent the rest of his years as a leper. But as, as Isaiah opens this up, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And I, I kind of got the picture that here was a king who was great and his greatness 
and again, forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but this is kind of what I was getting. His greatness was getting in the way of people's ability to worship God, his pride, his, his grandeur. And then even when he fell, there was that dark blot of God's judgment upon him that also was getting in the way of Isaiah's ability to worship. But in the year that he died, Isaiah saw the Lord. What are the things, the people, the habits that get in the way of our worship of God? You know, I know for me, I'm not such a technology buff, but when I try to read the Bible on an iPhone, (laughs) and in the middle of my reading, I'm getting reminders of phone calls I'm supposed to make, or advertisements are coming, or this or that, it becomes a distraction. It gets in the way of my worship of the Lord. And I'm not saying that as a blanket statement that technology is evil. It's not. But the most important thing should be worship of the Lord. And I think we need to be real with ourselves about the things that are getting in the way. We want to be as Isaiah, who have a vision of the Lord in our worship. And we need to be real with ourselves. What are the things, what are the habits? Who are the people, the friends that are getting in the way of our worship of God? But back to the question, what should happen when we worship? And I see in those first four verses there, I see that worship should cause us to be awed and worship should cause us to be awed and reverent at the presence and holiness of God. Listen to again to Isaiah's words here. He says he says in verse 2, above it stood seraphim, one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one cried and said to the other Holy, sorry, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I just get a picture of Isaiah being awed, Isaiah being in reverence at being in the presence of God. And I, I think practically, Worship should lead us into that presence of God where we're not thinking about ourselves. We're just overwhelmed by the presence of God himself. The second thing I see in that passage is in verse 5. Look at Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people who have unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think it was A.W. Tozer who is quoted as saying, the closer that I get to God, the farther I realize I am from him. And that's not to say that he was regressing in his Christian walk. It is to say that the more that he apprehended the greatness of God, the more he realized his own unrighteousness and his own shortcomings. And I think that if we are truly overwhelmed and awed by the presence of God, it will have that automatic effect of making us realize our own unrighteousness. Worship should cause us to be humbled 
as we are convicted of our own unrighteousness. The third thing that I see is in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with, his, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with, with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Worship should cause us to rejoice as we receive the forgiveness of our sin. You know, worship won't leave us in that place of just wallowing in our sin. But it takes us past that point to the wonderful place of seeing Christ's righteousness appropriated to ourselves. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Worship will make us aware of our shortcomings, of our unrighteousness, but it will take us past that to appreciate the even greater work that Christ has done to make us righteous. That's where worship will take us, to, that, to, to a place of joy. And then lastly, from this passage, I see that worship will always result in a response on our part. Then one of the, verse 6, then one of the seraphim, sorry, verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. I don't think we can go into the presence of the Lord having appreciated his majesty understood our own depravity, laid hold of the righteousness that he has won on our behalf and come away without wanting to step out in obedience and do something. That was Isaiah's response. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom will I send? And Isaiah simply said, here I am, send me. Having glimpsed the glory, seen his depravity, received the forgiveness, Isaiah responds with willingness and obedience and zeal. Send me. And that obedience that we walk in will itself be another act of worship. So the question is, am I a worshiper? Thinking back to the way we began, what defines a Christian? How does the world see us? And I think that truly what should define a Christian is that we are worshipers of God in the sense that Christ desires us to be worshipers. Am I worshiping God in spirit, knowing that he is everywhere? He's in every aspect of my life. Remember the the short little video clips I showed you. And as you were watching them, maybe there was one kind of worship that was more what you would call worship or more that you were comfortable with. 
And you would say that's worship. But you know, in the same way, I think we have a tendency to compartmentalize our life. And we say, well, in this part of my life, that requires worship and I'm doing it. But this other part of my life, that doesn't need worship. I can handle that on my own. I would say that we need to think of bringing worship of God into every aspect of our life, into our marriage, into our family, into our work. God is there. And because God's there, He wants to be worshipped in that arena as well. Am I worshipping God in spirit? Am I worshipping in truth? Am I worshipping in knowledge and not ignorance? Am I worshipping a God that I know? God has given us His scriptures that we might know Him and that we might worship Him appropriately. Am I worshipping in His way? Or am I like Cain, throwing anything up there and expecting God to take it as, well, that's my worship, God. I, you, I hope you take it. I think that when we are that kind of people, that kind of worshiper, or at least that kind of people that are desiring to be that kind of worshiper, we are beginning to be a people that are providing a clearer picture to the world of who God is and how God wants to be worshipped. Because you know there is going to be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will eventually be a worshipper. The question is, are we going to do it on this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity?